the outline that you're receiving, if you haven't been here, is last week's outline, and you just need to flip it and write on the back of it, because we only have one extra point that's not on the outline, and I realized when I created that outline a few weeks ago, there's one of those points in there on the third main point, I think, a sub point, that may have uh, been extra. I apologize. Sometimes... Uh, I make this stuff more confusing than it ought to be. Just write wherever you want to. It's yours, so it really doesn't matter how, how you do it. There will be one other point that we're going to cover today, and you just flip that thing over and write on the back of it or write at the bottom or wherever you want, because it's only a point, but we're going to look at a number of scriptures, okay? So if you don't have an outline from last week and you want one, if you'll lift your hand, uh, our folks will be happy to get you one. If you have it from last week, you won't need an extra one. And then, then we'll start a new outline next week. Uh, I don't know that I need to apologize, but I'll go ahead and do so that this lesson has taken so many weeks, but there's just so much information in it. I, I, uh, uh, Dan uh, Davis got on to me when I first came here because I would say, well, if I had time, I would deal with this. And he said, you have all the time in the world. Stop moving so fast. And so he, he's basically right. I understand that. It's just that I want to get through enough material that these series don't drag out so long that they just almost seem unending. So I apologize to you uh, for that. At the same time, he is right, and we need to cover the material and not, um, not move so fast that we don't accomplish the goal. And the goal, of course, in, in study is to learn. If we don't learn, kind of wasting our time, aren't we? If we're just kind of marking time and getting through material for the sake of getting through material, that that really doesn't accomplish anything. So hopefully uh, we can learn and move fast enough that we cover uh, good content and material. So this will be the last week on this lesson. I'll have a new outline for you next week as we go to lesson two in this series. I didn't print another outline today for this one point because that would have been a whole lot of waste of paper. So uh, I, I just thought you could, you could write it in somewhere. Okay, well, it's good to have you here today. If this is your first time to be to our pastor's class, welcome. I'm so glad that you are here. It's very casual. If you need to go to, and get more coffee or another donut or whatever, that's fine. Uh, but uh, we, are, we are glad to have you. For those of you who are joining us online, Welcome. We're so glad to have you. And then for those who will join us uh, later in the week as they watch on our, our website, we are, we are always delighted to have everyone uh, join us. It's an amazing thing that has happened over the COVID uh, trial or, or whatever you want to call this. We, we have discovered an audience that we hoped was there but didn't know for sure if they were there. And so through uh, our website primarily and then Facebook and other things uh, until we get banned, um, we, we are able to communicate to a lot of people. And so it's not uncommon for a particular lesson or message to have 1,200, 1,500, 2,000 hits outside of the folks who are in attendance, which I think is fantastic. Now, that would not be a lot compared to a, maybe a much larger church but for us, if you realize, that doubles or triples our audience. So if we have 500 here on a Sunday and we have 1,500 that, that hit the website and listen to a lesson or it's posted on Facebook and people share it, we may be multiplying ourselves four or five times over. So I think that's, uh, that's wonderful. I'll tell you another good thing that has happened, but it's been very difficult, and it's difficult for people who are going through this. It's never easy to go to a different church. That's always a difficult thing. Uh, I've done it. 
you've done it. And it's, it's, it's not easy. First of all, it's not easy to leave the church where you've been attending maybe for a good number of years because you build friendships, relationships. You take on responsibilities and you don't want to feel like you're, uh, you know, just walking away from commitments and, and friends. And typically, if you don't go to church with those folks, unless there's some other way by which you see them all the time, you won't see them uh, very often. It's kind of strange, but it just, it just happens. But... Through the, the, the whole COVID ordeal, uh, we have started having people come to Fairview who've said, I'm tired of attending a church where the pastor and the other leadership won't address issues that are taking place right now in my life and in our lives. Now, that's not anything new, and we've had people come to Fairview over the years. Fairview is, is kind of uh, earned or created a reputation for dealing with difficult subjects that most churches won't deal with. And I'm not suggesting that we always uh, do well, but we try our very, very best to take a biblical look at everything that's going on. Now, we don't want to just become a headline church. We're committed to biblical uh, content and to doctrine and proper theology. But in my mind, theology that just floats out in the air as a philosophical point without some kind of connection with how it applies to my life today or tomorrow or yesterday may not be worth as much. We've got to be able to take the Bible and then use it to interpret our own lives. Every generation has to do that. The current events change, but the the challenge for a Christian to be salt and light in this world of decay and darkness is is always there. It's it's ever-present. And so we have to learn how to take God's Word, God's truth, and apply it to our lives. And so that's what discipleship is. And unfortunately, I believe over the last 50 or so years, pastors, many of them from seminary, but not all, have kind of taken the approach that I'm just going to preach the Bible. And they'll always say that. I'm just going to preach the Bible. Well, that's good. That's great. We need to preach the Bible. But if there's no application, we just throw theology out there, and we can all walk around and we can quote all these different things, but we don't know how they apply, then what good is it? Other than we know the truths, but we don't know how to apply them. And I believe that's why the church today, and I don't mean this church, I mean the church, is so incapable of dealing with the challenges that we're facing in this culture and in this time because we've not been taught how to apply Scripture to what happens to us on Monday or Tuesday. We we don't know how to do that. And Barna has really shown us that in a lot of studies that he has done, whether he has studied pastors and their refusal to preach on certain passages of Scripture because they claim they're just too controversial, or whether you you look at people's beliefs and then when you drill down, you discover that only 9% of those who claim to be born-again Christians have a biblical worldview, meaning that they're able to take the Bible and then look through that lens and see life as they ought to see it from God's perspective. Well, I, I think that's the church's fault. So that's what, that's what we try to do here. And for those of you who may be relatively new, I know that that's difficult to make that shift. And I want to welcome you to our class. Now, before we get into this lesson, there is a current event that surrounds me 
that I need to touch on. I will, I will touch on it more next week when I preach, but my classes have always had the either uh, misfortune or the advantage of hearing stuff first before the rest of the congregation does. So I don't know whether this is a blessing or a curse to you. I don't know which it is. So sometimes you get a little bit of a review um, uh, because I've already talked to you about it. But we're, we're kind of an intimate group here. We're, we're really family. And so I want to share something with you that uh, happened with me a few days ago. Let me begin by setting the stage This is not the Minuteman statue. Most people think that's the Minuteman statue. Actually, the Minuteman statue stands at the Old North Bridge in Concord, Massachusetts. So this is not the Minuteman statue. That's actually the statue of Captain John Parker. That is in Lexington Green. And if you notice, the road does this. Well, the right road leads to Concord. And so the British were marching toward that point. Now, of course, it's modernized and then redone and the curbs and all that. So things are a little bit different. But this is the point of what is called Lexington Green. If you've never been there, it's hard to visualize. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And back behind Parker's statue is Lexington Green, which is where the Battle of Lexington took place. More like a skirmish. But I guarantee you, for those who were involved, it was a battle. Okay, And right here, about where this statue is, there used to be a building. It was called the, the Meeting House. And in most New England communities, and probably most during that period of time everywhere, rather than just having a church, they had a meeting house where everything took place. It was kind of like what we'd call City Hall. It's where the church met. If there were community meetings of any sort, they would meet there. But that's where Pastor Jonas Clark pastored. So the British are headed right at Jonas Clark's church. This is where John Parker... Now remember, John Parker was a veteran of the French and Indian War. That's why they called him Captain Parker. He had fought in the French and Indian War, and now he's connected to Jonas Clark, who is the pastor of the church that, would, that sat right about there. This is a close-up of the statue of Parker, obviously as a younger man. So when you see these pictures in the future, you'll know that this is not the Minuteman statue. That is the, the, the statue of Captain Parker. Now, the reason why Parker is important is because as a deacon in that church, he was working with Pastor Jonas Clark to train the men of their church and of the community how to fight together as soldiers. It had been a while since the French and Indian War. Many of these men did not have any military experience, and so they're training them how to fight in a military style Uh, But not just the members of the church, members of the community. And this was happening all over New England. And this is where they they call themselves Minutemen. So when you hear about Minutemen, they weren't just in Lexington. Most people don't realize that the Lexington Minutemen were trained and led by a preacher and a deacon. So that really begins to change history a little when you know that. Okay, now directly behind the statue of John Parker is another monument that you can barely even find on the internet. It's amazing. You can find hundreds of pictures of the statue of Parker and the the flagpole that you can see over there in the distance in this photograph. This is, of course, Lexington Green. But you can hardly find this monument. If you've never been there, then you don't realize what this is. You're looking at the front of a pulpit, And then this is a Bible right here. 
And this talks about the meeting houses, the three meeting houses that had been built right there on that spot, which was, of course, in the days of the Battle of Lexington, the meeting house that Pastor Jonas Clark held church in. Okay, now here's a picture of Paul and Cindy a number of years ago. This is looking from standing on the backside of that pulpit monument. And now you can clearly see the Bible. Okay, and then on that very same backside, there is a list of the men who had pastored that church. And if you look right here, John Hancock. Now, that's not the John Hancock who wrote his name real large and said, uh, maybe King George can read that without his glasses. But it was his grandfather. So John Hancock's grandfather had pastored that church years before. And it actually lived in the parsonage where Jonas Clark uh, lived. And the night that Paul Revere makes his famous ride to Lexington, uh, the John Hancock, the grandson of the, of the John Hancock who had pastored that church, was there visiting with Pastor Jonas Clark along with Samuel Adams. So, you see, none of this is taught in history. Our kids don't know this. I didn't know it. I'm not a historian, but I'm a lover of history. Now, there's, I'm going somewhere with this. And then notice that the next preacher was Jonas Clark. He's the one who's there on the day of the Battle of Lexington. Then, where the Minutemen were standing out across the green, and I lead tours there, and so we, we actually line up and stand where they did. There is a stone here with the command that Captain Parker gave to the Lexington men. There were about 77 of them. Now you say, well, about? Well, because they didn't keep meticulous records like we do looking back at it. They, they knew that this was historic, but at the same time, they didn't write it down and count everybody. So there was somewhere around 77 men there, and there was somewhere between 700 and 800 redcoats that they're facing. And so I'm convinced that Parker and Clark, the pastor and the deacon, did not intend to fire on the British. They're outnumbered 10 to 1, maybe more than that, would have been suicide. So that would have been silly. But they did want to make a show of arms as the British marched past and took that right turn to go to Concord. Because everybody knew that's where they were going. They were going there to confiscate weapons. Okay, so Parker gives his men this command. It's etched on this boulder right there. You can read it. Stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. Now, once they had made their point, Parker and Clark decide to send the Minutemen home. And as they turn to walk away, that's when a pistol is fired. Now, the reason we know it's a pistol is because even today, pistols make a different sound from a long arm, a, a rifle. Of course, most of theirs were not rifles. They were smoothbore flintlocks. But a pistol makes a very different sound from a long flintlock rifle. And it was a pistol. More than likely, it was a British officer because they are some of the few people in those days that actually owned pistols. Now, it could have been someone else. No one knows. But a pistol went off. Well, the redcoat soldiers who were nervous, you can understand from their perspective, they're nervous. They've loaded their weapons about a quarter of a mile back. They don't know what's going to happen. When that shot rings out, what do they do? Well, they open fire. And the first shots were fired into the backs of the Lexington men as they're walking away. They were abiding by his command, do not fire unless fired upon. Okay, so that's the history behind a post that I posted on my Facebook a few, a few days ago. And here's, here's the post. 
You can read, but let, let me read it to you. It says, Our first revolution effectively began with the British firing first. That's historically accurate. Captain John Parker and Pastor Jonas Clark gave the Lexington Minutemen the command, and I quoted what's on that boulder. If they mean to have a war, let it begin here. As the Minutemen walked away, the Redcoats opened fire, shooting into the backs of the Minutemen. Well, that's really indisputable. That's history. Today, it's very different. They, meaning the left, are censoring Trump supporters, i.e. Christians and other conservatives, putting them on no-fly lists for life, causing them to be unable to do business and purchase certain goods, etc. And things will only get worse. Are we willing to be banned from public life just because we're Christians and conservatives? Where does my pacifism stop and my patriotism begin? We must effectively and quickly answer that question. The answer may be a difficult one. Now that's the post. Now that's the post that got the local news all ginned up. And Channel 5 ran the story and had an ecumenical uh, female pastor make comments. And some have asked, Dan, why didn't they interview you? They asked to. I turned them down. Now let me tell you why. It's not out of cowardice. I made a decision back when I was serving in the legislature that unless there was some kind of live, remote interview where they don't have time to edit it and they cannot change what you're saying and they give you more than 10 or 15 seconds out of a 10-minute interview or 15-minute interview, I'm not going to do interviews because they always twist what you say they, they, they pick out of context what can make you sound the dumbest, which is not difficult for them to do it with me when I'm talking, or the most controversial. I mean, it's easy to take a 10-minute conversation and clip that, especially if you're talking about something controversial to begin with, and make that person look about however you want them. And then, of course, you can set it up with the reporter leading in to make it look whatever it is they're wanting to, 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 to communicate and then have somebody else from the exact opposite side and they kind of give them uh, a carte blanche to say exactly what they mean and they don't twist and cut their stuff. Paul and I have had that done to us so many times. It's just, well, it's, it's beyond frustrating. And so I've just decided that the answer is no. I'm not going to go sit down and they film me for 15 minutes and then there's 15 to 20 seconds on television and they can do whatever they want to and typically my experience has always been what they do is very unfair. So that is why I did not make uh, or grant an interview and why I was not on the news giving counterpoint to what I had posted because you can't. You just can't. They do not want to have a civil, reasonable, logical conversation. That is not what they want. They're looking for something salacious to sell news. That's what they want to do. Now, overwhelmingly, the responses to that post have been incredibly positive. But at the same time, there have been some of the nastiest things said on Facebook and Val and Dan have worked, uh, you know, constantly to block all of those. I don't mind dissent. If somebody came on there and said, hey, I just don't agree with you. Well, that's fine. 
But when they start dropping four-letter words and the F-bomb and all that kind of stuff, and then calling Fairview the church names and all that, well, that's, that's not fair. I, what I said is historically accurate, and I believe that what I said about what is happening right now is proving to be so. Now, that post was made uh, when things were the hottest, not because I planned it that way. That's just when I made the post. Whether or not they will actually end up putting congressmen and others on no-fly lists, I think they're kind of backing away from that a little bit because they got so much negative press. But that's what they were talking about. Congress was talking about it. They're talking about censoring people like Ted Cruz, whether you like Ted Cruz or not. So that was the time when I made this post. At the same time, that's when people were losing their Facebook uh, accounts. Uh, Many people, Laura Ingram, uh, Sean Hannity, all the biggies said that their accounts had been so throttled they had lost thousands of followers. I heard it straight from their mouths. Uh, We know that Trump was completely banned. We know that Parler was jerked from the servers. And I don't know if they're up and running yet, but everybody that had a Parler account lost everything. Parler as a business was shut down because they were having to rent a server space, I believe from Google is is who they were renting or whoever it was, which shame on us for as conservatives not going out there and creating alternate parallel serving capacity so we didn't have to be buying server space from these leftists because you can always expect a leftist to do what a leftist does. It's like the snake that wanted to hit you right on the back of the turtle across the river. You've heard it. The turtle said, no, if I do that, you'll bite me. And the snake said, I promise you, I won't bite you. So the turtle says, okay, swimming across the river. They get just right to the bank on the other side, and the snake bites him. And the turtle said, I told you. I knew you'd bite me, even though you promised you wouldn't. Why did you do that? And he said, well, that's just what snakes do. They, they just bite things. And that is exactly what leftists will They'll always do what leftists do. So anyway, that's what was going on when I made this post. Everything in there is factual. Now, of course, what they really got upset about is when I started talking about pacifism versus patriotism. And that was just a few days after the, the raid on the, 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 the uh, uh, Capitol in Washington, D.C. And so they, they've tried their best to do something with it. I still think that's a legitimate question. When does pacifism end and patriotism? And I didn't define what patriotism would drive you to do. Maybe it would be to do a new Tea Party movement. I mean, see, they automatically assume that patriotism means load up an AR-15 and start shooting people. Well, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. And then I said, we must effectively and quickly answer that question. And the answer, answer may be a difficult one. And I think it is going to be. So that, that is what caused all of the, 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 the stuff and, and why there was a news, at least one news program on it, and why I wasn't on there. Because I declined the interview because I know what they do. Okay, so I wanted to set the record straight so you'll know exactly what was going on and why that happened. And I'll be happy to visit with any of you if you want to visit personally. I don't take any offense. If you don't like the post, okay, that's fine. Maybe I could have worded it better. 
you know, no matter what you do, whether you write a book, you write an article, you write an essay, or you make a post, eight days later, 15 days later, you can always go back and say, man, I could have said that better, or I could have done this better. This, I'm, I don't consider myself an author, but I've written three books. And sometimes it's one of the most painful experiences that I can have to go back and read what I've written. Because you just, you think, my gosh, uh, I could have written that so much better. I could have said that so much better. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's some way in which I could have expressed myself better. I, you know, uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So anyway, that's what that was about. If you didn't know about it, now you do. If you did know about it, now you have more facts uh, to kind of back it up. And that's why I use the quote. The reason why I gave you that little bit of history, if you didn't already know it, because I wanted you to know where that quote came from. I didn't just drag that up out of somewhere, out of somebody's so-called anecdotal story. That's actual history. And the problem is these reporters don't know history. And our culture doesn't know history. And because they don't know history, we're destined to continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over, which is a very, very sad thing. Okay, I'd be happy to visit with any of you about it. I won't take any offense. So feel free to approach me today after church. Give me a call. Send me a text, email, whatever, uh, because uh, uh, I'm, I'm open to you and uh, uh, w- want to talk about it. Okay, last week we, we wrapped up here. We talked about how Satan is a defeated foe. He's constantly falling. Uh, he falls from heaven. Then the Bible tells us that he's headed to the bottomless, what we call the bottomless pit. We call it that out of Scripture. Revelation 20, verse 3, he's cast into the bottomless pit during what I, uh, the millennium, which I believe is a thousand-year rule and reign of Christ after a seven-year great tribulation. Then he's released out of that for just a little while, goes back out and begins to deceive the nations. And then Revelation 20, verse 10 says he falls again, this time to the lake of fire. So the point that I made at the end of class last Sunday is that Satan is always falling. Lucifer, once he led his rebellion against God, is kicked out of heaven, and he's always falling. Down, 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 down. And his crowd is the same. Now, the opposite is true for Christ and his kingdom and believers. Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus first humbled himself. He lowered himself, became a servant, and was willing to go through the most terrible, humiliating death you possibly could at that time, crucifixion, and yet now he is highly exalted. So Jesus does the opposite of Lucifer. Lucifer with pride decides he's going to take God's throne, and so he falls. Jesus humbles himself and is then highly exalted. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, if you humble yourself in the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time. So it's not only Jesus who is exalted, but because of his grace, one day we will be exalted. So I think it's just interesting to see Satan's downward trajectory, down, down, down. All right, now let's look at a few verses here that I think are important for us to understand how ultimately the devil uh, is done in. Remember, this is not a fallen God. Satan is not a fallen God. He's a fallen angel. Jesus and Satan are not having an arm wrestling match, and the the outcome is still in doubt. Uh, Satan is not a great titan who's challenging God. The outcome was never in doubt about that. He did challenge God, but he was never a challenge to God. Does that make sense? So it was, the outcome was never in doubt. But listen to Hebrews 2.14, because I think that is an important passage of Scripture 
uh, to focus on. The, the Bible says that, that Jesus is ultimately, of course, the one who vanquished the devil. Insomuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, well, that's us. He's talking about the children of, of, of Adam, ultimately the children then of Abraham. He himself, that's speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same. This is Philippians 2. He became us. Now, he was still divine. He was the great uh, union, uh, divine or divinity and humanity, what theologians call the hypostatic union. Neither one is diminished. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. And in case we don't know who that is, that is the devil. So Jesus, the Bible says, has destroyed Satan. So there is no rivalry here. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's done. It's, it's completed. And then you can look at Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, this is talking of Jesus again, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, it's kind of interesting that when you read Scripture, you need to always know what these pronouns and and other references are. So when he says triumphing over them in it, the them is the principalities and powers. So that would be the devil and his demons and anyone who would side with the devil and his demons, meaning humans, wicked individuals. So that's the them, triumphing over them in it. What is the it? Well, if you read above in verse 14, Paul is referring to the cross. He's referring to Christ going to the cross and becoming the ransom for sinners and the payment for everything that needed to be paid for, the ultimate, as John the Baptist said, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, of course, the resurrection is the uh, proof that God the Father had accepted the payment of God the Son because death could not hold Him, proving that He truly was divine and undeserving, not only of execution, but of death, period. Remember that death is a penalty that falls on Adam and his seed. Jesus is not the seed of Adam. In fact, as we said last week in Genesis 3.15, the Bible says that Jesus is the seed of the woman not of Adam. So not only did Jesus not deserve death as in the execution on the cross, he didn't deserve death. That's the penalty that comes to sinners. But he willingly died. He is the only person who ever chose to die who didn't have to. All the rest of us may choose when we die, but we're not choosing whether or not to die. We're all going to die. Jesus is the only one who did not have to die. Death had no hold on him. In fact, he told the disciples that Satan is coming and he has nothing to get a hold of. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he meant. He had no hold on Jesus. But he chooses to do it. So it's the cross where Jesus defeats the devil. So this is why people who go around who are constantly giving the devil all of this power and, you know, the devil did this and they're always talking about demons here and demons there. Well, Jesus has defeated principalities and powers at the cross. And then Romans 5.21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice again this, this word reign. Before the cross, sin reigned, bringing death. But in grace, 
brought through the righteousness of Jesus on the cross, then righteousness reigns. That's very important that we, we get that. And then 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Satan is truly a defeated foe. Okay. All right, let's go to point number four, which is not on your outline. So you just have to scribble it in somewhere on the back or at the bottom. And that is Satan is a deceptive farce, not force, farce. Everything the devil does is a lie. Remember in John 8, 44, Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies. And those who follow him lie just like he does. Okay? So Satan is a deceptive farce. So everything that he does is a charade. It's a smokescreen. It's smoke and mirrors. He is not in charge. Now, he is the God of this world right now because like the illustration I gave you of the missionary that had the native to cut the head off of that constrictor snake that had gotten into his house. And then the snake is thrashing around in there. And he says, well, if you got his head, why in the world is he still doing all that damage? And the native said, well, I cut the head off the snake and he's dead. The snake just doesn't know it yet. And that is exactly what is going on in this world. So Satan is the God of this world system, not the world materially. The Bible says that God owns creation. So this idea that God can't come onto the earth unless he has permission from, from the devil, and all, that, that is just complete and utter nonsense. <laughs> I, I don't know where they dredge all that stuff up. They meaning typically the word of faith movement. But anyway, Satan is a deceptive farce. Now, Paul makes that very, very clear when he's writing to the Christians at Corinth. Most of us see the devil like this backdrop that I've been using. Horns, grotesque. Actually, the Bible describes him looking more like that. In fact, this is exactly how Paul describes him. In writing to the Corinthian Christians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, you're probably very familiar with this passage. Paul says, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Now, we just finished our series on, on uh, uh, holy angels. So now we're talking about fallen angels. And notice, he says, he wants to look like uh, the, the faithful angels, the ones that did not rebel against God, the ones who did not fall, the ones who were not cast from heaven. So he wants to appear as an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, that second part is really primarily referring to, to humans. His ministers is a reference to particularly men, but it could be women, who are either deceived or are deceivers and fe- teach false doctrine, heresy. And false doctrine can come in many ways. Heresy typically is knowingly taking God's word and twisting it to teach something that God does not say. Sometimes people become deceived. And in their deceived state, they will say things about God that are not true. Now, they're still culpable, but I'm always careful not to necessarily label everybody who has false teachings as a heretic. Because sometimes people are deceived and they just don't know that they're believing false doctrine. Now, they're not off the hook. 
Because the Word of God is there for us, and if we study God's Word and we understand it, we won't be deceived. The Bible constantly reminds us and warns us about this. But I'm not sure that every false teacher is a heretic. But then, of course, there are heretics. But there are people, pastors in pulpits, who are deceiving their people. And whether those pastors are knowingly deceiving their people or they are ignorantly deceiving their people, they are still operating kind of as a minister of the devil. I mean, look at what has happened to the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, many of you may not have a connection to the Southern Baptist Convention, but for all of my preaching ministry as a Baptist, I was a Southern Baptist because that's where I received my training at First Baptist Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so I just naturally, once I left the Free Will Baptist denomination as a very young man, became a Southern Baptist. And typically, Southern Baptists have, already, have always stood for biblical inerrancy. Uh, Southern Baptists have stood for biblical ethics and, and all of the, the different things that you and I would expect them to stand for. Unfortunately now, just like the American culture, the Southern Baptist Convention is split right down the middle. Now, I don't know if it's 50-50 or if it's 60-40 or 70-30. I don't know what it is, but I do know that the powers that are in charge, just like in America, the powers that are in charge of the government, I don't know that they represent half the people, but they're in charge. Well, in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, you have men like J.D. Greer, who is the two-time now president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he closed his church back when the COVID thing first started, and he wasn't going to open until 2021. Now, I don't know if he's opened his church yet. I haven't checked to see but he has taken a very soft stand on homosexuality. Uh, he has taken a very soft stand on what's been going on with BLM and Antifa and all these different kinds of things as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And right now, there are many pastors and, and, and Christians alike in the Southern Baptist Convention that are all up in arms over the direction that the convention is now going. Now, I was around back in the mid-'80s when there was the big struggle in the Southern Baptist Convention led by people like Adrian Rogers and Charles Stanley, if, you re, if you're old enough like me to remember that, and it was called the Conservative Resurgence, where conservative Southern Baptists woke up one morning and discovered that the liberals had taken over most of the Bible colleges, most of the universities, most of the seminaries. And so led by the likes, as I said, of Adrian Rogers and others, there was a resurgency of conservatives and we, quote, took over the Southern Baptist Convention. Unfortunately, there was not enough vigilance. And you can see what has happened. And so now the Southern Baptist Convention is filled with preachers who take a soft stand on a lot of important things that the Bible is not ambiguous about at all. I mean, not at all. And you say, well, I mean, most of these guys preach the Bible truthfully. Well, yes, the parts that they're willing to preach. But here's the thing, if you knowingly avoid truths because you don't want people to know where you stand on them, then aren't you dishonest? And Barna has already shown us through studying the preachers back in 2014 that the majority of pastors admit that all of the controversial issues in our culture are covered by Scripture and that the Bible is abundantly clear on all of these issues but almost all of those pastors said they're not going to preach on those things. 
And when he asked them why, remember the top two reasons. There were about five reasons that kept rising to the top when he was asking these preachers. But the top two reasons why pastors said, I'm not going to touch those things that are controversial, is because they said it hurt our attendance and our offerings. So when he talks about ministers, it could actually be a Baptist minister. Now, I'm not saying he's knowingly serving the devil. But guys, when we do not stand for what is true in the midst of error and darkness, we kind of default to being standing to, to be standing for what is not true. We have a job, and we cannot stand here idly and not say something when the world is melting down around us. Paul said to the young preacher in, in the second letter that he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.26, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So, you know, if you're taken captive, if you're deceived, the very definition of that is you don't know it. I mean, if you're deceived, typically you don't know that you're deceived. And I, I can tell you, and it's a very sad thing that I know... I probably mention way too often, but I guess because it's so important and so dear to my heart, but I encounter pastor after pastor after pastor who is deceived. I don't think they're heretics. I think they're sincere Christian men who have bought in to the idea that what they're called to be is successful in a CEO-ish way. The church is a corporation, and you're supposed to make that corporation grow. Now, they always do it in the guise of reaching people for Christ. Well, I have my doubts about whether or not they're really reaching them for Christ. How in the world can a born-again Christian read 1 Corinthians 6 and say, I'm a saved practicing homosexual, or I'm a saved practicing lesbian? Now, at the same time, you can't say that I'm a saved practicing drunk, or I'm a saved practicing thief, because they're on the list too. So I don't mean to just single out. If you read the list, we're all on it. But my point is, how could someone be blatantly living a life of defiance to what Scripture clearly teaches and then say that they're a born-again Christian and I'm faithful to the Lord and pastors not touch that subject and run from it? Well, I know why they run from it. They don't want the heat that comes if they deal with it. I get it. I totally get it. In the end, I was forced out of my church in Yukon over this kind of stuff. Now, not over the homosexual lesbian kind of thing, but over trying to take Scripture and apply it to our circumstances at the moment. I know. I know how it feels to be told by your board of elders, uh, you need to go. I get that. But I'm living proof that there's life after that. There's life after they kick you out, you know, if you're faithful to God. So, I mean, I get their fears. I totally get it. I've, tell you, I've had black robe pastors come to me and say, Dan, I, I took a stand and they fired me on Monday morning. They said, but thank God. I, I'm going to be faithful to God and I'm going to do what God's called me to do. I mean, that's just the price that you pay. So don't tell me that these people aren't deceived because they are. They want a sugar and spice and everything nice gospel. And everybody wants that. I mean... I'll preach nice, you be nice, I'll be nice, and want to be nice around here. I mean, that's the message these days. Just be nice. Just everybody be nice. And then Revelation 20, 
Satan is bound up in the bottomless pit during the millennium so that he can't deceive. And then he's released at the end of the millennium. Why? So he can go deceive. So the whole point that I'm making with this passage of Scripture to even bring it up is that he is a deceiver. He is a deceptive farce. Everything he promises is a lie. But then he uses deception to get you to believe the lie. So it's, it's very, very sad what is going on in our culture. It's always been going on. Don't, don't misunderstand. I know this struggle has always been going on. But I can tell you at least in my frame of reference, I was born in 1959. So do the math. August the, the 26th, 1959. So I'll be 62 this coming August the 26th. So in my little frame of reference... I can't speak for what happened before me, but I can tell you, I, I, I can certainly testify of what I've seen in my little window of experience. And the church has gone south. And I would have never believed that I would see what I'm seeing today. And it's, it's just alarming to me. And, and unfortunately, you are the poor people that have to listen to it constantly. And I, I apologize to you for that. But hopefully there's more truth than that that comes out of these lessons. So anyway, that's what the devil is all about. Now, I want to end here this lesson with an illustration that I think is very apropos going back to the devil and how Jesus defeated him on the cross. Napoleon, as you know, was a man bent on world conquest. And he almost accomplished it. Uh, he failed, he fell short, but the story goes that after the Battle of Waterloo, in his war room with his generals, Napoleon pointed at the British Isles on a map on the wall and said, if it were not for that red spot, I would have conquered the world. Now the red spot that he was talking about was England. That was the red spot on the map. And he said, if it weren't for that red spot, I would have conquered the world. But the English were just simply in my way. Well, if Satan has a war room, he may call his demons around every now and then say, if it were not for that hill, if it were not for that hill, I would have ruled the universe. Because you know what happened on that hill. And I believe that Satan forever points to that hill and says, if it weren't for that red spot, thank you, Miss Lucy, if it weren't for that red spot, I would have them all. But he lost that fight. Adrian Rogers said, as Christians, we are heaven-born and heaven-bound. But we are also born for a battle. We must understand that not only were we born for the battle, but when we were born again, we were also born to win. And so you and I are on this massive journey where we are involved in a colossal fight. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the demons. We're going to get started talking about them. How do they work? Where did they come from? Are they at work today? How do they work today? But I want to, I want to close with this verse of Scripture because we always must be careful. You know, those of us who are committed to the truth, sometimes, if we're not careful, can be, become prideful over the fact that we stand for the truth. And here's what Paul reminded the Corinthian Christians. He says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Remember that pride precedes a fall. 
So every one of us need to stay on our knees spiritually and be humble and pliable before the Lord, and then God will use us. We get prideful and arrogant. We'll get hard-hearted. Pride blinds us to all of our other sins, and then we fall into what Paul calls the reproach of the devil, Satan, Lucifer. So let's don't do that. Stop right here. I'll have a new outline for you next week, and we'll begin our discussion of the demons themselves and and how they work. Thank you for allowing me to share today. God bless you. Thanks for being here. If you're new with us, please come back again. We'd love to have you. You're dismissed. We'll take a little break, and then we'll have our uh, worship service.